turn in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8. Vision is not something we normally think about. Maybe you get poked in the eye and then we need to talk. I want us to think tonight about seeing clearly. I remember vividly in the fifth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Shackles, she and I didn't see eye to eye, no pun intended. I didn't really want to learn and she didn't want to teach me. We, she called for a parent-teacher conference and told my parents that she didn't think I could see the board very well because I wasn't doing well in school. Maybe that was part of the problem. I just didn't want to apply myself. But I want us tonight to engage in a spiritual eye exam. And as we look here at Mark chapter 8, Mark uses a story of Jesus and his healing a blind man to help us understand the rest of the text. And so this story, this this healing event by Jesus will help us to understand the rest of the chapter. So let's look tonight at Mark chapter 8. We'll pick up in verse 22, and then we'll lay his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who Do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole? For what can a man give? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pray again tonight for the illumination of your word. Help us to see tonight wonderful things from your law. We acknowledge our dependence upon you. We need you, O God, by your spirit to to come and to open my mouth to help me to speak the very words of Christ tonight that your people might be edified, that Christ himself might be glorified. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, Father, but doers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this text begins as the disciples and Jesus come to Bethsaida. And maybe you recall that Jesus condemns Bethsaida and Sidon. In fact, he says it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than Bethsaida and Sidon. Why? Because even though the very second person of the Godhead stood before them, they missed him. They did not see. They rejected the Messiah. And notice here in our text that Jesus takes this man. This man is brought to him, and Jesus brings him out of the city because they do not see. It's a fascinating story about Jesus who heals this blind man. It's almost like a two-stage healing process. And we're asking ourselves, Jesus, what are you doing? We know this is the same God and Lord that spoke all creation into existence. He not only spoke it into existence, he maintains and upholds all of creation. Every molecule Jesus Christ holds together by the power of his word. So we scratch our heads and ask ourselves, why is he doing this? Well, as I mentioned to you, this this is the focal point of this section. And I'm going to show you really what Jesus is doing to help us see what it is in this passage that illustrates the rest of it for us. And I want us to consider three outcomes tonight. When Christ opens our eyes, there is, number one, confession. When Christ opens our eyes, there is, number two, correction. And number three, when Christ opens our eyes, there is consecration. So let's begin with the first outcome, which is confession. Jesus is alone with his disciples. We read that in verse 27. They leave Bethsaida, and Jesus begins to talk with them. And he asks them a question. Who do people say that I am? I don't know that he really cared about what other people thought of him. But he asked them. He wants to to know. And of course, Jesus, who knows all things, but maybe in his humanity, is asking sincerely, what are other people saying about me? And they said that he was one of the prophets. In fact, the first century Jews saw Jesus in that same classification. One commentator writes, The people saw our Lord not just as a prophet, but as one of the prophets, those whose influence set them apart from everyone else and who exercised a prophetic ministry. Well, we might say, well, that's nice. Okay, they saw him as one of the prophets, but they missed him. They're not seeing clearly. He doesn't really care what other people are asking about him or who they think he is. So he asks a follow-up question. Look in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? You, 
his disciples, those who had given everything up to follow him. Jesus is asking the question to him. And notice, and this is under our first point, Peter's confession. Peter is the spokesperson for the group. I love Peter. He's my favorite apostle. It's like he opens his mouth to change feet, right? He's one of those that is quick to speak and slow to listen. And I'm like, that's me, Lord, help me. And yet here, Peter, by this, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, confesses, you are the Christ. And the Christ in the Greek is the anointed one. He is identifying Jesus as the Messiah. He is the Christ. Matthew's gospel gives us a little bit more information. Listen to this from Matthew 16, 16. This is Peter's confession and response. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The Catholics have taken this and they've run with it. And they said, well, Peter is the rock, Petros in the Greek, means rock. And so the Romans will declare that the foundation of the church is Peter. But I want you to see tonight that the foundation of the church is this profession of faith from Peter. It's not Peter himself. It's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This revelation is miraculous. In fact, what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus had touched Peter's eyes. And as a result of this encounter with Jesus, spiritually, he confesses. He can't help himself. I was thinking about as we were driving, so I don't know how many of you know, we, we started in Louisiana, we went up to Vancouver for four weeks, came to L.A., we're in L.A. for three weeks, and now we're headed home. So we've been in Colorado Springs for two weeks. And the Lord blessed us and, and allowed us and enabled us to go to, I think it was four national parks. And so we would drive through Yellowstone, and we couldn't help ourselves. Seeing the beauty of creation, I started chuckling. Because you'd hear in the back saying, wow, look at that. That's amazing. And that's just a, a very small and sad analogy as to our response, our response when we are encountering the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see him for who he is, we can't help but confess. And that's exactly what Peter did here. He could not remain silent. I want you to think about at the consummation, when Jesus comes in glory. Let me read this for you. I think it's really powerful. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is what's going to happen. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus Christ at the consummation comes in all of his glory, every person, not just Christians, every person will fall on their knees and they will confess that Jesus is Lord. Notice there the pronoun will, this adverb, excuse me. It's not, no, they might, no, they will confess him as Lord because of who 
he is and his glory being revealed. So number one, when Christ opens your eyes, there is confession. Number, the second outcome, when Christ opens your eyes, there is correction. Jesus begins to teach in verse 31. And what is he teaching them? Teaching them. He's unpacking for them the theology of the cross. This is Christ humiliation. So this is like maybe a junior level class for the disciples as they're sitting at his feet. Some people just say that seminary is extra biblical, but you think about the apostles sitting at Jesus' feet for three years, and here he's teaching them. And he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And Luke tells us he was speaking plainly. We could say that the apostles had messianic myopia. They couldn't wrap their minds around this. So their thinking was, Jesus is our political savior. They're thinking physically. They're not thinking spiritually. And so they're, they're struggling with this. In fact, we could say they're seeing men like trees. They're not seeing clearly. Christ has touched their eyes. Peter has confessed. But they still don't understand. Their vision is blurry. And in fact, as Jesus is speaking of what he must suffer, this would have been very offensive and odious to them. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is verses 22 and 24. For Jews request a sign, that is power, and Greeks seek after wisdom, that's knowledge. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So as Jesus is unpacking this theology of the cross, as he's speaking of his humiliation, they would have been thinking about the scripture in the Old Testament, about whoever was, whoever died on a tree would have been cursed. And so they, they had heard enough. And what does Peter do as the spokesperson for the group? This is incredible. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. We're like, what? How can this, this would be something maybe I would do. He's impetuous. It's so visceral, it's, he can't help himself. And so he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. I love this because Jesus doesn't even let him finish. He's, it says in verse 32, and Peter began to rebuke him. And Jesus responds immediately. immediately. And I love what Jesus does. He turns his back to Peter and he rebukes Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because you're not focused on the things of God. Satan wanted to do anything he could in his power to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Peter in that setting, that would have cut me really, really deeply to think that I'm being a pawn. I'm being used by the devil, kind of like the serpent in the garden, to tempt Jesus to turn his face. And we know the scripture speaks of Jesus, and his face was set like flint toward Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop Jesus 
from accomplishing his mission. Because why? He had you, he had me in his mind going to the cross. He was the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 33. And this is in keeping with this first healing. And Mark writes, but turning and seeing his disciples. I love that. They're not seeing clearly, but Jesus is. And turning and seeing, physically demonstrating what he says to Peter. And he turns his back on Satan and corrects this false, false gospel. Because what we want is Christ's exaltation, but we don't necessarily want his humiliation. And there is some in the liberal church today that would say that the vicarious atonement of Christ on the cross was cosmic child abuse. You will read that. N.T. Wright and others, and I call him N.T. Wrong, that God's wrath that was poured out upon the sinless sacrifice the second person of the Godhead that bore our sins on the cross, that was cosmic child abuse. They can't wrap their minds around why it is Jesus came to die. And this is what Jesus is unpacking for his disciples, and, and they're missing it. Their vision must be corrected. They have to see clearly. He must touch their eyes again. I so often think of myself and how my vision is distorted. I hate to tell this on myself, but I remember walking into my daughter's room, Keely. She was probably 10 or 11. She had a little bulletin board on her desk, and there was this little note card full of prose. I thought it was some kind of poetry, and I started reading it, and I thought, what in the world is this? This is ridiculous. And to my horror, I looked at the bottom, and it was a verse from Ecclesiastes. And I thought, I don't know the word of God like I should. Am I seeing clearly? So a pastoral exhortation to you. The word of God is your food. You need to be in it every day, consuming it, allowing it to wash, it, wash over you and meditate on it to avoid these kinds of misconceptions and preconceptions that distort our vision of what God is doing, what he wants to do. Well, they needed correction. And maybe we would call that gospel goggles or scriptural spectacles, but you need to be in the word daily. Listen to this from the writer of Hebrews chapter 4. This is one of my favorite verses. This is very familiar to you. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I want you to think they're scalpel, okay? It's eye surgery. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the living word. Why do we call it living? Because in the very next verse, the writer of Hebrews writes, and no creature is hidden from his sight. That's why it's living, because it's the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need him to touch us. We need this eye surgery so that we might see him clearly. So when Christ opens your eyes, there is confession. When Christ opens your eyes, there is correction. And now number three, 
When Christ opens your eyes, there is consecration. Jesus continues to teach in verse 34. Now he's bringing into the crowds. He was teaching with his disciples and separated from the rest of the crowds. And a lot of times in the scripture, the disciples mean, mean more than just the apostles. So you had other disciples coming in to hear Jesus, and he makes this outrageous statement of people surrounding him. And then he would make a statement like this, and so many of them would scatter. Remember the statement he made in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. People are like, what, what in the world is this man talking about? He, he wasn't interested in crowds. He was interested in speaking the very word, the very truth of God. And here he is speaking of denial of self. Are you seeing clearly? He gives us this propositional paradox in verse 35. Look at that. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Speaking of total consecration, total surrender. When you see Christ, your life is changed, and you will be changed, and you will want to be like him. In fact, the scripture speaks of when we see him, we will be like him, for, she, for we shall see him as he is. We must get lost in Christ. Colossians 3.3, 3, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So we need this life, this life of righteousness, this life of holiness, this life of consecration, consecration that we're, we don't even know where our life ends and where his begins. Jesus talks about this great exchange. And this is in verses 34 through 37. I'm not going to read all of it, but I want you to listen to these terms, okay? He's quoting from Psalm 49. He uses monetary terms such as lose, save, profit, and give. I mean, let me read for you from Psalm 49 that will pull this together. This is Psalm 49 verses 6 through 9. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Listen to these monetary terms. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. I want you to focus on those words. The redemption of their souls is costly. There's no amount of money on this earth that can save your life. Only Jesus Christ, by sacrificing his own self on the cross and exchanging his righteousness for our unrighteousness, this double imputation, the redemption of their souls is costly. He purchased us with his precious blood. And this is the power of the cross, this divine power manifested in weakness because those who don't understand those those who haven't had their eyes opened look at the cross as foolishness but god uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise 
Listen to this from Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we see the resurrected Christ, there is consecration. Notice verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are you living a life of consecration? Have you seen Christ with your spiritual eyes? If you have, you're going to want to put off that old self. You're going to want to put on his righteousness. You're going to want to be different. You're going to want to live for him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Are you being consecrated to him? All three of these results are connected. When we have been made alive in Christ, we can see with confession, that's faith, comes correction, which is repentance, and then finally, consecration, which is growth in holiness. I want to close with these words from John Newton. John Newton was a former slave owner. He had a glorious encounter with the resurrected Christ, and he wrote the words to amazing grace. And I want to read one hymn or one section of this as we close. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we desire to see clearly, and we need you to touch our eyes. Sometimes we, we see you and we confess, we repent, we are corrected, but Father, we need continual correction and reminders from your word, the living word, the, the word of, of Christ himself, to penetrate to that scalpel of your word, to penetrate our hearts, to excise those parts of us that need to be removed, that we might be consecrated soul and body to you, O Lord. Forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us when we participate in willful sin. Oh God, continue to work in us. Consecrate us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for these words of Jesus and his example. And we pray all of this now in his name.